all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Well, Southern Remedy is the program where you get to call in with any question that you might have about your health or the health of someone in your family or your friends. That's right. We can take those calls right now and try to give you the answers that you need this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or if you're not able to call, you can always send us an email. Send those to remedy at mpbonline.org. Wonderful morning this morning for uh, for. Uh, for me, I don't know about you, but man, stepping out the door and it was 63 degrees this morning around 7 o'clock and uh, it was great to feel that. Love that fall air, a little less humidity in the air too, so lots of good weather for the south and the state of Mississippi um, for this this week, so enjoy that. Try to get outside, get a little bit more activity than you have. Uh, Exercise is always good, even if it's in limited amounts. And uh, just enjoy that. So I hope everybody is enjoying that as as much as I am right now. Um, Seeing a little bit of a downtick still in our COVID numbers, so that is very positive. I know we have certainly are are glad to see that. Uh, Hospitalizations for COVID across the state have gone down as well. Uh, So uh, please continue to be safe if you're out and about. It's not, uh, you may think that, well, if numbers are going down, maybe I don't need to get vaccinated. Please consider that. Talk to your physician about that. See if you are, are, uh, you know, eligible. If you're eligible for a booster vaccine, you may want to check that out, too. I know the FDA is uh, ruling on that, particularly for Pfizer in the next uh in the next week or so, um, and uh, has made some preliminary suggestions about that. So uh, always a good idea to do that for your protection and the protection of others. Again, this is Southern Remedy. I would encourage people to call in early. Um, We oftentimes get callers later in the program, and while we try to get everybody squeezed in, we don't always have as much time to talk to everyone, and I hate doing that. I hate having to to cut people off or maybe not getting to the – their questions that they have. So let me encourage you and give you permission to call in and be the first couple of callers. So the number again is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And speaking of emails, there was an email that came through uh, from a listener. Actually, I think it was one of our other Southern Remedy programs, but we're going to address it here. Um, so it says, my son was recently diagnosed with a mild impaction, and we did, did a three-day cleanse um, 
and have added a half a cup of Miralax to his daily routine. Part of the challenge is that he says he can't feel when he has a bowel movement happening and is having some accidents from that. So this is after years of potty training, he'll soon be six. So this is, it sounds like it's a common thing. We call this functional constipation. Um, very common in this age range. You can have children that are potty trained and then have some problems with constipation. And really, it just has to do, if you think about it as an adult, uh, you this is this is our our potty talk that we're going to try to to be as clean as possible on the air with. But basically, if you're in an activity and you're busy doing something and you have the urge to go to the bathroom and evacuate uh, the contents there, uh, you may have uh, something else that you're doing, so you sort of delay that. And after a while, that impulse to do that uh, to go to the bathroom goes away. And um, and when you have time as an adult, you go and do that. Um, but as a child, there may be some things, and particularly around age six, um, you know, going to school, there may be some embarrassment there. There may be some other things that maybe they're outside playing and they don't want to come in. So they just delay that. And the longer you delay having a bowel movement, the more you absorb water from the colon uh, from the colon contents, and uh, that makes the stool harder. So um, a lot of times you have to get it soft enough that there's not any kind of discomfort so that they feel very comfortable going to the bathroom. And then also combine that with things like bathroom breaks, so some scheduled break time for bathroom uh, for bathroom evacuation is very important. And parents, oftentimes they'll back off of the Miralax. Miralax is a osmotic agent which basically keeps water in the stool so it keeps it soft and you want it really soft to the point where it's it's just formed but not really hard uh, so and you have to do that sometimes for weeks to sort of retrain the bowels of that little one so that they know that when they're having a bowel movement it's not going to hurt Pain can be an impulse that, you know, if it's really hard and they, they are really, uh, if, if it's a painful bowel movement because of constipation, that can last a long time because that little one will think, uh, there's nothing good that ever came out of my bottom, so I'm just going to suppress it for longer. And, of course, that just exacerbates the problem. So some information about uh, constipation out there, so just uh, keep that in mind. And uh, Miralax is a great agent uh, to use for it. It's not absorbed by the body. Again, it just sort of keeps water in there. It's also a good idea to maintain proper hydration uh, no matter what your age and um, to also uh, eat plenty of foods with fiber in them. That'll help sort of move things along. So that's just a little bit of information about constipation. This is uh, Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can always send us an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. A lot of... Uh, concern about medical conditions that may be associated with dementia. So dementia is, uh, is a, 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 usually a um, progressive loss of memory and functioning as the brain uh, is not working properly. Many different causes of dementia, they're not always Alzheimer's type uh, dementia. In fact, uh, many of the, of the different causes include things like vascular changes and 
many different diseases that can impact that. But there was a recent study in, uh, in England that looked at about 12,000 individuals, and they started this study back in 2006 and then followed it through 2021. And what they were looking for is a development of dementia and if it was related to other medical conditions. And, you know, there's an old saying that says the eyes are the window to the soul. Uh, and it, there's, it's certainly true that a lot of things, systemic diseases, do pop up on an eye exam. And you can see early manifestations of those through the eyes. But it was interesting that um, specific eye conditions um, did lead to an increased risk of dementia in these 12,000 patients. So about 2,300 developed dementia over the course of the study, but the specific eye-related diseases were age-related macular degeneration, so that has to do with the deterioration of a, of a certain part of the eye, the macula, cataracts, uh, and diabetes-related eye diseases. So that were, those, all of those three categories were linked with higher risk of dementia um, uh, in those individuals. It's interesting, they looked at glaucoma too, and glaucoma is an increased pressure in the eye, uh, and that did not lead to an increased risk of dementia. So don't really know why these things are going on. Certainly the more systemic diseases that a patient has, uh, like diabetes, hypertension, stroke, and heart disease, and even depression, these can all lead to increased risk of dementia later in life. So it pays to treat those conditions, to be serious, get get serious about it, and to make sure that, that they're being controlled. Uh, and it will, uh, you know, the, the thought is it might impact your uh, or decrease your risk of, of developing dementia later in life. So just something to think about. Now, dementia is one of those diseases that uh, conditions that people really fear. Uh, you know, getting older is, um, is great, but you want to think about the quality of your life too. And certainly um, treating things like hypertension, diabetes, your stroke risk, and depression uh, can all decrease your risk of developing dementia later in life. Dr. Jimmy. Yes, sir. Let's get uh, one call in before our first break, and it's our friend Sue in Beaumont. All right. Good morning, Sue. Thank you for calling. I, I want to ask you a question. I, I just heard that uh, an old nurse friend of mine had just uh, expired, and she, she I didn't know they did heart transplant surgeries down at Oshner's in New Orleans, but she was part of their transplant team one time. Yeah. And and I want to ask you. I, I know the original research was done up there at University Medical Center, right? For heart transplant. Yeah, that's true. That, that's true. Yeah, Dr. Hardy uh, was one of the first uh, surgeons that uh, did a lot of the, the the baseline research for heart and lung transplant. I never hear anything about heart transplants anymore. Is there is there? Re, I mean, what, were they not successful? Why, why did they stop doing those? And and what happened to that whole thing, the heart transplant? Yeah, that's a great question. So they still do heart transplants. The reason why we you may not hear about them quite as much is one of the reasons is we've gotten so good at pre, pre, uh, preventing some of the things that led to having chronic heart failure, and we have much better ways to treat chronic heart failure um, in patients so that it prolongs their life. They have a much better quality of life. They can do a lot of different things, and they can hold off on a heart transplant. 
Um, it may sound like getting a brand new heart is the best thing ever, but it does carry risk. Certainly, it's a huge surgery that carries a lot of risk, and you have to take anti-rejection medication, which also carries some risk of opportunistic infections, and there's always a risk of rejection, which would necessitate, uh, a if you're continuing to live, a, a second heart transplant. Um, you know, the interventions that they use now for uh, early on and the identification of, of heart disease earlier and the treatment of it has been really instrumental in decreasing that. So the stents that they use, some of the other medications that can keep those arteries open, uh, the statin medications uh, uh, have been really uh, powerful tools to decrease your risk of heart attack, stroke, and um, heart failure. And then again, the, the medications that we know now, uh, even in my training lifetime, I can remember back, uh, you know, in 1997, 96, somewhere around there, uh, we, we didn't have but a handful of medications that we were treating heart failure with. Now we have several more that are really powerful in uh, slowing that risk of, uh, of heart failure down so that a person can, uh, can delay things like a heart transplant. But they still do them. Um, they still um, do heart transplants at major centers. Um, it's just that we've been very successful in preventing some of the things that led up to it. So um, excellent question, as usual, Sue. I hope you're doing well and enjoying the weather today. Oh, it's wonderful. I love it. I want to ask you a question right quick. Is university doing any other research on chronic illnesses so that, like they did with a heart transplant? Yeah, we, we do a lot. Uh, so we have a clinical uh, a research um, a building that does some what we call translational research. So, you know, there's the research that has to do with uh, you know, in the lab that ha may be with different chemicals and different substances and medications uh, and then the application of that. And then we also have research like with medications that are already used with certain things and can they prevent things. We have a lot of research going on in the MIND Center, M-I-N-D, so that has to do with age-related changes in the brain. Um, and it's both you know, a lot of the research now is, is really intertwined. We know that some of the best research, the ways to do research is to do it in the context of treating patients. So we treat patients, but we also study different things so we can identify those risk factors and then maybe look for ways that we can, um, you know, uh, uh, approach those in a way that can change those effects over time. So, yeah, we've, there's lots of different areas that we're doing research uh, here at UMMC, and um, if you're interested, there is, I'll try to get this out uh, during the break, but there's a, a website that I'll, uh, I'll uh, give you a little bit later in the hour that has that information of how to contact if you're interested to participate in that, because it is a great, can, it can potentially benefit you, and it can also uh, benefit uh, research for somebody else that might help them down the line. So thanks for bringing that up, Sue. Thank you. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and uh, lots of questions, either by call or email, about any kind of health care issue that you might have. The number to call this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. 672-7464, or you can send us an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. Uh, previous call. Uh, yes, go ahead. We have got two callers on the line, so let's All right. start with Doris in Columbus. Good morning, Doris. Thank you for calling this morning. Good morning. Uh, my question is, is there anything that you can use or take for toenail fungus that doesn't have yeah, yeah, that's a difficult one. So, you know, toenail fungus, uh, anicomycosis is our fancy name for that, and um, it um, it's a hard one to treat. You know, we have a lot of fungus in Mississippi just because of the higher humidity. You can find it everywhere. Uh, it's not necessarily a hygiene problem, although it is associated with some other medical conditions, particularly diabetes. Uh, and peripheral vascular disease. doesn't have to be, though. Um, anybody can have it. If you have fungus on your skin um, and it's not in the scalp, it's fairly easy to treat. We treat that, we can treat that topically almost, almost every time, um, and that's a really safe way to do it. The problem is if it has to do with the nails, and that can be your fingernails or toenails, or your hair, it's a lot harder to treat because it gets down into those the the what we call the matrix of the uh of the fingernails and toenails or the hair shaft the hair follicle uh that makes those hairs and you really can't treat it very well with a topical agent you really need to get it down to that tissue level so it's it's almost always unless you catch it really early sometimes you can treat it in some areas that way with a topical agent and that can be things like lotrimin or over the counter lamisil uh there's several others that are out there that are pretty uh, effective but um once it gets in the hair or in the nails you almost always have to take something by mouth now you do you know Doris you do bring up a a, a good point a lot of those medications you have to be careful with because of some side effects. And if you have liver disease in particular or you have uh, maybe you're taking some other medications that are metabolized by the liver, you have to be careful with which ones you select. There are some older ones like griseofulvin uh, that is pretty safe. We actually use it in kids that are really young for sometimes for particularly for fungal infections in the hair uh, in the in the scalp. And uh, it's probably one of the safer ones. It does take a long time to treat those, no matter what you use. Uh, so you're looking at at least four to six weeks, maybe longer, because that nail has to grow out. And usually it's not going to grow any faster than about a millimeter per per day. So it's very slow growing. Um, but there are some other things that you can take, like terbinafine orally, um, there's different ways to take it, but uh, you'd want to do that under the supervision of a physician. 
Okay, would you spell that? What's it? Grid the first one. You Gr- said. Yeah, Greziofulvin. So it's G R I S E O F U L V I N. Greziofulvin. this prescription. That is prescription, yeah. Everything you take by mouth uh, for for fungal infections is going to be prescription. And, it, you know, there's a lot of things you can do. You know, a lot of people will paint them with iodine or different stuff, and it really just it doesn't, in my experience, it doesn't work that well. You may have one or two people that it works for, but, um, you know, you really, to get down to that matrix in the, in the toenail that makes that nail, it's deep in there, so you're not going to really get to it with... Um, with anything that's topical. Okay, what were those other two? Lamisil is another one, or uh, terbinafine, yeah. So uh, if you, you know, you can ask your physician, and they're going to have about three or four of them that you could take, uh, and they can, they and your pharmacist can let you know sort of the side effects of those. Well, I have a prescription. Uh Uh-huh. What's that one for? Uh, That's what it is. But is it? Do you know the name of the prescription? I was trying to find. I should have caught. Oh, that's okay. I had. Yeah. I bet it's. I bet it's terbinafine. Um, Yeah. That's the the terbinafine. Yeah. Yep, that's it. Yeah, that's one of them. And and they may, you know, sometimes I'll even in in my higher risk patients that I have on terbinafine, that's a good one. uh, And it's fairly safe. I will monitor their liver enzymes while they're taking it. And if I get a bump in those liver enzymes, if they go up, I'll I'll take them off of it. But um, yeah, it's pretty safe. You just have to be careful depending on what else you're taking and what other medical conditions you have. It has so many side effects, though. It does. You're right. Well, you know, they have to, every little, you know, that's just the way that we do medications in the United States. So basically every potential, and not even one that's that's been uh, proven to be a cause and effect, every potential one, you have to list all those side effects and just to be careful about it. But uh, it doesn't mean you'll necessarily have that, and they should list it in there if you read all the fine print. You know, maybe 1% of patients had this, 5% had this. Um, and they'll have they'll have some that are very rare, and then some that have been associated with it. But uh, if if you have you know if you have some concerns about that, go back and ask them about greziofulvin and see if you might could take that. You think that is has less side effect than the than the true true. Yeah, without without knowing the whole picture, it probably does uh, have less side effects, but it's not going to be quite as effective as that terbinafine. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Uh, Dr. Jimmy, our other caller dropped off, so we've got some open phone lines. What's the number someone should call? The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 While we're waiting, uh, Sue had asked about clinical research, and I had pulled up the Office of Clinical Research. So, If you have access to the Internet, you would go to umc.edu and search for research. There is a page on there about clinical trials and participants. So when you get to that page, they'll talk all about the opportunities for a clinical trial. And 
a lot of these, you know, people are sort of scared of some of these because they're like, well, I'm going to be a guinea pig. A lot of these are just they're looking at patients over time. They may draw some blood. They may ask you some questions, and that helps us know better what are some of these associations of medical conditions and how can we prevent that uh, over time, the progression to different things. So uh, a lot of them are extremely, you know, you may get some information out of that about you that your physician would normally um, would normally check. You can also check for the area of interest. If you're interested about clinical trials, for instance, I'm looking at a list of about 30 different things, addiction, allergy, cancers, uh, diabetes, eye health, uh, sleep disorders, stroke, women's health, men's health. So there's lots of different things that you can select. And then if there's a current clinical trial in that area, they'll contact you. You still have the, you know, as as the uh, individual, you have the option to opt out from all that. There's no, uh, there's no initial commitment, but it does help us to have a lot of more information about how to treat patients, and we're always looking for for new information about uh, all kinds of different things. So I'd advise you, to, if you're interested in that, check that out. Again, that's umc.edu uh, backslash research, and uh, then just, uh, just search within the site for the Office of Clinical Trials. So that's some things that you can uh, check out if you're interested in that. Do want to, um, you know, a lot of people will say, "Well, man, I just I caught your program, and but I didn't quite catch what you said on the first end of things." Want to remind everybody, you can go to our website to mpbonline.org and check out previous programs that have aired. So we do uh, have a repository of those. We usually get those up and running within about a day or so after they air. Uh, you can just search for Southern Remedy and pull those up. Or if you're into podcasting, you can also uh, search for the Southern Remedy uh, podcast and uh, check that out. Uh, that's a great way to search for it. I know I have a lot of podcasts on my phone, and that's an easy way to get to the information, and uh, you can hear it uh, weekly because I know a lot of people are very busy, and uh, this is an hour you might be doing other things and maybe just catch snippets of the program, but we do want you to have access to that. So check that out on our website. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy Podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things listen to Fix It 101 podcast everywhere. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning taking your questions and uh, your calls about any kind of healthcare topic that you might be interested in. Maybe it's new medication that you have some concerns about, medical condition that you just want some input on. You can reach us right now by calling one 877 MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven 
612-672-7464, or you can always email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Dr. Jimmy, I'm not sure what you said, but it certainly drove the phone lines crazy. We've got four <laughs> folks on the line ready to ask right. questions. So we'll start again with Alan in Raymond. Hey, Alan, how are you? Oh, oh, I think I'm okay. Okay. <laughs> What's your question? Go ahead. Well, basically, my doctor's been worried about my heart racing or skipping a beat. It's uh, fibrillating. Yeah, probably atrial uh, fibrillation. Does, does that sound Does that sound familiar? AFib. Oh uh, yeah. Um, is that the next one? Oh, well, in a nutshell, anyway, I, I've been I've had a couple of procedure tries to shock it. Uh huh. It hasn't worked. And my doctor says it's a very difficult thing to do. Not anybody can do it right. And apparently, my case is different. <laughs> A woman, eighty-two years old, one shot, boom. Uh, yeah, it's it's not as easily treated as you would think. Um, so, you have a <laughs> so, so yeah, so so some patients they do have what's called, like you said, when you shock it back, sort of into regular rhythm. That's called cardioversion. A lot of them will have medications that you take along with that, but in some patients. And it is in patients that are older, um, so your heart's not just quite as as, um, as young as it used to be, and it uh, can be persistent. And in some patients, despite all therapies, it can it persists uh, to have that irregular rhythm. And that you know, not not necessarily for AFib alone, but sometimes you have for other arrhythmias, you even need like a pacemaker to help regulate that. Um, but I'd I'd keep uh, Alan. I'm I'm uh, uh, you know there's probably a cardiologist that you're seeing. There are some other other techniques and things that have been tried. But I'd stick with it. It does take time. It's very frustrating. I know for patients, but it's not just a one-stop shop cure-all. So uh, not everybody's the same. They used to tell us. You know, the patient doesn't read the textbook. In other words, the textbook describes certain things and what the treatments are, but everybody's a little different. And uh, I certainly have patients that um, I tell them, uh, you know, you're, you're not stubborn, but your medical condition is stubborn. Um, I just wanted to ask about this procedure, the doctor who's doing it, he, he had me on uh, Amadaron. A- Amiodarone, mm-hmm. Yeah, 200 mg's, and I, they had a follow-up, and I said it was bothering my stomach. So they gave me a Mutag, M-U-L-T-A-Q, 400 mg. Uh, probably metoprolol. <clears throat> yeah. That's that's yeah, another just, blood I'm pressure just... and, and, and heart rate regular uh, regulator medication, yeah. Wow. Um, I'm on the other one, which costs four times more, and I'm wondering, I couldn't get to the doctor. Could I go back to the original one because it's four times less? Pro, uh, yeah, I, I, you'd have to check with them. I would just give them a call, uh, but, yeah, they, you might be able to do that if you had a good effect. And that's a good point. You know, a lot of times um, we don't uh, take into account how much that's going to cost, and sometimes that's it's hard to predict based on in different insurances, but yeah, it's um. I would check back with them because there may be some cheaper alternatives, and I would yeah. be very 
up front with them about that and just say, look, you know, I can't afford this. Yeah, well, I, I, the thing is, uh, there's a different doctor that I was referred to because he said he was the best. But unfortunately, when I went back for the second time, the EKG came out perfect, and they canceled yeah. the procedure. But when I went to see the doctor a week later, he says, uh-oh, your heart's still fibrillating. Yeah, it can go in and out like that, yeah. That's that's one of the, again, that's one of the persistent things with it. So I, you know, I, Alan, I, I would check back with them about that and just be frank with them. Just say, hey, look, this medication's really high. Can I go back to the other one at this point? And I, they're going to give you the answer that you need. You know, I, I think that there probably is an alternative that's cheaper, though. Okay. I, thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you for calling out. Both things, and one's supposed to be better, and I don't feel it. I still get that stabbing in the stomach. Yeah, yeah. And you, just tell <laughs> them about all that, can. and they they may be able to do something a little different that is that also won't break your uh, your wallet. Yeah, well, one hundred ninety nine dollars a bottle is a lot of money. That is a lot. You're right. You're right. I thought I had a good prescription plan. <laughs> yeah. All right, Alan. Well, thank you for right. calling, and uh, good luck to you. Uh, Dr. Jimmy, we lost a couple of callers, but we still have Lisa, who's on the road today. All right. Good morning, Lisa. Hi, Dr. Stewart. Um, I'm calling to ask what you would recommend for dandruff. I'm currently, about a month, I've been using Celsin Blue, but it's mm -hmm. not working. Yeah, and it may not be dandruff. Um, I, that, that's one of the things is making sure that you have the right diagnosis. So Celsin Blue has something in it. It has a weak, a, a small amount of something called selenium sulfide. And uh, you can get, uh, you know, a little bit stronger prescription level of that. And I'm not sure who, uh, you know, uh, your physician is, but they might can prescribe that with a little bit higher dosage. But I'd get somebody to look at it, and if you can get a dermatologist to look at it, even better, because it may be something a little bit different. Sometimes there's other things that will masquerade as dandruff, um, but they may be able to treat it with something that's a little bit stronger than the Celsin Blue. Okay, so just ask my doctor or preferably a dermatologist. Yeah, dermatologist is probably the best bet. And, I mean, if your physician, if they're pretty comfortable with skin lesions and hair, you know, hair conditions, they're going to be able to look at it and see. But usually if I have somebody who, you know, says, hey, they'll call the office and they'll say, hey, I think I have dandruff, and I'll say, okay, well, have you tried the over-the-counter stuff like Celsin Blue? Um, then we'll try something a little bit different. But after that, I think it probably warrants somebody just taking a glance because it may be something that's a little bit different that may need some different treatment. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Thanks for calling. We've got another caller on the line, Dr. Jimmy, so let's talk this time with Bob in Meridian. All right. Good morning, Bob. Hi. How are you? Good. Thank you for calling this morning. What's your uh, question this morning? I have. It, it's more of a clarification. I okay. was diagnosed about a year and a half, two years ago with SVT. So the question is, is AFib a symptom of SVP or is it something completely separate? It's a, it's a little different. Uh, so SVT is supraventricular tachycardia. So it is a fast Correct. heart rate that originates right. in the top two chambers of the heart. And I know you know this. I'm just for our for the rest of our listeners. Um, 
It is a little bit different, though, than AFib. So AFib is a fibrillation. SVT is a little bit more coordinated motion, and it doesn't have the same risk, particularly for blood clots forming in those upper two chambers uh, and going downstream to, to have a risk of something like a, a stroke um, or an embolic event somewhere. It still has a lot of problems, and most of them are just annoying. Like people will go into SVT, and they'll have they'll have palpitations where they feel their heart rate going fast. They may have some shortness of breath with it, fatigue, anxiety. Um, so those are all associated symptoms. But they are two distinct things, and you really can't you can't tease that out very easily just on physical exam. You have to have an EKG. Uh, and really, even for the EKG, you need a cardiologist looking at that um, to to make the distinction. They are treated differently also. So in the, the treatment of SVT, a lot of times, particularly if you have uh, overlying hypertension, I'll use something like a beta blocker, which uh, will slow the heart rate down and treat the hypertension um, but um, SVT can also be caused by underlying conditions, so things like thyroid disease. I'll make sure that I check that on uh, on labs on a patient that comes in with SVT for the first time. Um, but they are a little bit different. They're different in the treatment. They're different in the, the risk of other things that could happen. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. Yeah, it's just a little bit, you know, just a, a sort of cousins, I guess you can think of them like that. But yeah, uh, but they are treated I, a little different. He has me on cardizem, and yeah, uh, when I went in for my hand, when I went in for my great, and they did an EKG, he's like, "Huh, you're an AFib? Do you feel it?" I'm like, "No, I don't." So he put me into he put me on a on a blood thinner for about two weeks. Mm-hmm. Went back in for a recheck, and I was still an AFib. And then they went in, and they went a week later and came in and did the shock thing, and I didn't find it. But yeah, uh, they, some, sometimes you can have them intermittently like that. Like that's not too uncommon to have a patient that presents with SVT, and then it converts to AFib or vice versa. Um, but again, yeah, the cardioversion, which is what you just described with the, the shocking it back into regular rhythm, that's fairly successful. They do want you to be on most of the time anticoagulants before that because, again, of the risk of forming a clot. But SVT, cardism is one of those other medications. Uh, it's, it's not a beta blocker, but it's a calcium channel blocker that will slow the heart rate down. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls. Some great questions this morning about all kinds of good stuff. Uh, as usual, you can always call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or if you didn't quite get your question in or you want to, uh, to email us um, when we're not broadcasting live, you can reach us at remedy at mpbonline.org. We do try to address those directly, but we also try to share those when uh, you give us permission with our larger audience because they're always great questions. Dr. Jimmy, we got two calls to wrap up the hour. We'll start again with Susan from Hernando. All right, Susan, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for calling. What's your question this morning? Uh, uh, my question has to do with the at-home COVID tests. I heard on the news that there's a quick at-home COVID test made by Abbott Laboratories. I think it's called Binex. Do you know have any news about when Mississippi might be getting that? We're in the process of waiting for three days to get a result of a COVID test. And yeah. I've heard at-home tests are used all over Europe and in some states in America. When is it coming to Mississippi? Yeah, I don't have that 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 direct knowledge of that access to it. But you bring up those issues that we're seeing in a lot of communities where you just don't – there's not a lot of access to that and you're having to wait for a long period of time, which impacts – going back to work or going back to school and you really need to know, know a lot quicker with that. So those uh, at-home tests, so they, there's two different general methods of testing for COVID. One is an antigen test, so it tests for um, for a part of that uh, of that COVID molecule, uh, and it's it's fairly good at detecting it. It's uh, also it's known as the rapid test. So a lot of times, if you go into a testing center to get it, they can get that within about 15 to 20 minutes. We use that in our clinic situation. There's another one that's much more specific. In other words, it's much more accurate. Uh, that is a PCR test that tests for the uh, you know, it's just a, a, the core part of the of the COVID uh, virus, and it um, it takes about a day to get back. Uh, or if you're running them in batches, which is probably the situation that that you're describing, sometimes that'll be a, a few days in getting that those results back, just because of the volumes that are there. So I don't know exactly, and it's probably even. It's not probably not even statewide. It's more regional and pharmacy selected. I tell you, the people who are going to get, have the most information, I would call your major pharmacies in the area, and just ask them if they uh, call the pharmacists at the pharmacy at, at those pharmacies, and ask them if they anticipate having those. And they're probably going to have the the best information on when those might be available in your area. But even even within the state, I think there's going to be some areas that are going to have it and some that aren't. Uh, but they are useful. They're not, you know, they're 100% accurate, but um, but they are useful if you're if you you know particularly in exposure situations of people who've been exposed and they want to test in about four days later. So, um, but I check with the pharmacies and they're probably going to have that information for you. Okay, thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. All right, Dr. Jimmy, we're going to wrap up with Bobby in Petal. All right. Bobby, thanks for calling this morning. What's your uh, question? Well, I'm 75. Back in October, I had COVID five weeks. Uh, March and April, I got the Pfizer vaccine. Last week, I went and had my antibodies checked, and they came back zero. Can you tell me why that is? 
Yeah, so antibody response we know goes down over time and every person's a little bit different in how long that lasts. So while you know, if you look at the studies that have been done on antibodies from people who have had COVID or they've been vaccinated or both, the average time period that we know that they're good for is at least eight months. And some individuals will have it for longer. In fact, we know that for individuals who had COVID and then got vaccinated, they tend to have a little bit higher antibody levels. And the other important thing about that is that antibodies aren't the only re, the only thing that your body uses in in the immune system to fight it. So there are memory uh, cells that remember that, even though your antibodies are not up. This is common for lots of other things too, things we immunize against and things that you get. Um, although those antibodies response, you could think of it as sort of the, the first line once that, that virus gets in your body to fight that off, uh, memory cells will say, will recognize it, and then they will instruct the cells that produce antibodies to do that. So I know a lot of people are using antibodies in sort of a litmus test on whether or not they have immunity. It's not the only immunity out there. But it is also why they're recommending now that particularly in older individuals, because we know the immune system doesn't work as well as we get older, uh, even if you've had COVID, if you've gotten vaccinated, why a third dose in a two-vaccination series or if you had the Johnson & Johnson another dose is beneficial to boost that immune system back up. So, uh, you know, go go ahead. By having zero antibodies don't mean that I'm not immune? You may still have some memory, you know, to that, to those memory cells. There's not a really good way to to test that in the general population. Those are pretty complicated tests to test that. But you are at a higher risk group, even though you've had COVID and you've been vaccinated. Um, When did you say the time period was that you had uh, the vaccination? April. It's only been five months. Yeah, that's long enough that your, you know, your immune system may have gone down after that. And if you think about it like like a flu vaccine too, we know that flu vaccine sometimes within the same season of getting a vaccination it doesn't last that long. So, um that's the whole reason, you know, people are like, "Why do I need to get another vaccine? I already got completed the series." Um that may be the reason. Now, in your case with your age, uh I, and with that information, if if I were you, I would I would get uh, I would get another vaccine. I would get the booster uh, to try to bump that or that response back up. Uh, and then we just wait and see how long that holds up. Huh? Yeah, but we don't know. That's right. Uh, we just don't know as as time goes on. We can't look into the future. I wish we could. Um, but what we do know for most people, it's about eight months. For some, particularly older individuals. Um, immune system doesn't quite work as well in those populations. So, all, all right, right, Bobby, th- thank you for that question and uh, for great questions today. Um, that's a, such good information. We always have some great questions that uh, listeners uh, who uh, who are experiencing different things and can share that with the general population of our of our listening audience. Um, one thing to keep in mind too, I did mention this at the front of the hour. As the weather gets better, take the opportunity to get out there. We've got a lot of people, I know I've seen a lot of my patients that may have, 
yeah, just not quite has been as regimented about their exercise routines. And uh, and it's a great time to sort of reinvigorate and get out there and get some stuff done. I'm trying to do this myself with some yard work and moving around more and uh, running and uh, and walking. But um, that's a, it's a great time to do that. We have seen some obesity rates go up in the last two years, not too surprising uh, uh, based on everything that's going on. But uh, you can still... Uh, meet the challenge of being active in your life and uh, impacting your health care in a positive way. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Slowly we started, you know, picking these turtles up and saving them. I'll stop traffic, grab one out of the road. And then our friends found out and our vet would call us. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We are now a full-fledged, nonprofit turtle rescue. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast.